Hi guys, welcome to another Fret Dojo podcast. It's Greg O'Rourke here, the founder of Fret Dojo, and I'm thrilled to have on the call today the legendary guitarist Carl Orr. Uh, Carl has played with many jazz greats and, and many greats outside of jazz as well. And um, today we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, like, we're going to have a, a bit of a free for all conversation actually about Carl's uh, influences, his music his latest album. Uh, he actually did a course for me recently in the Fret Dojo Academy uh, that we'll talk about as well and um, and everything besides. So I'd just like to welcome you on the call, Carl. It's fantastic to have you here, man. Yeah, thank you very much. Lovely to hear that Australian accent, mate. <laughs> Miss it over here in London. <laughs> uh, we're, we're both Aussies for, for anyone that's listening um, on the phone, which is uh, a bit unusual because, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of the guys that I interview are from the States. So, yeah, likewise, man, it's fantastic to have um, a fellow countryman uh, interested in jazz guitar of all things. But, um, yeah, Carl has performed with um, some of the finest players on the planet, including Billy Cobham, George Duke, Ernie Watts, Randy Becker, Gary Husband and Benny Maupin, and also Don Grusin and even Sting as as well. So um, some fa a fantastic lineup of players that that Carl's played with. He's um, he's a regular at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London and uh, in his own band, and also as a member of drummer Mark Fletcher's supergroup Fletcher's Brew. Carl's taught at the Australian Institute of Music, Brunel University, Middlesex University, London Centre of Contemporary Music and the Academy of Contemporary Music. Uh, he's a prolific composer, recorded eight albums as a leader and uh, featured on albums by other fantastic musicians such as Billy Cobham and many others. So um, today we're going to be talking about your latest album, Carl, Somewhere Else, which I've listened to. Um, it should be out about the time that this podcast is released. And, um, and yeah, that'd be fantastic to talk about on the call. But I thought uh, to get started um, with, with our conversation, uh, you know, I've been thrilled, um, you know, putting together the latest lesson series that you've worked on uh, with me in the Fret Dojo Academy, all about cliche improvisation. And I really want to kind of talk to you about you know where did it all start for you um, with your um, uh, guitar playing you know like where, where did it begin and um, and you know what twists and turns did your career take you as, as time went on um, well I uh, I was born in 1960 and it was around about the time that the British invasion took off the Beatles the Rolling Stones the Kinks a wonderful period of music. And um, the earliest thing I can remember in my life is being, I don't know, maybe two years old and having a, a toy guitar and singing uh, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah by the Beatles. And I could sing it okay, but the the guitar was making this weird little cacophony that I, I, for some reason, I, I had no idea what was going on. I just sort of moved my fingers around on the guitar and it just made no sense. And I just thought, hmm, I have to figure this out. That's my f the first thing I can remember in my life. And that's pretty much been <laughs> my constant <laughs> thought, you know, for 
you know, the best part of 60 years now is I've got to figure this thing out, you know. And, how, how have uh, you gone? Have you figured it out yet? I, I've figured bits of it out. <laughs> Nobody ever figures it out. They figure out a bit and it's been a wonderful journey. So I, I um, yeah, I grew up in the 60s, a wonderful period for music. There was, as I mentioned, the gr great uh, English uh, pop music of the time. And then I grew up and there was, you know, hear things on the radio like uh, Motown music, you know, you'd hear, um, you know, Reach Out, I'll Be There and, and Diana Ross and the Supremes and Stevie Wonder and little Michael Jackson with the Jackson 5 and... Uh, and then some the rock music got heavier and there was Hendrix and Cream, which I found pretty disturbing at eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> and then 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 uh, you know uh then there was like really good quality pop music like Burt Bacharach and and the Carpenters and uh, Glenn Campbell on the more countryside of pop music. It was a really amazing time to be a kid interested in music. It just seemed to be an endless supply of, of uh, quality popular music, you know. And um, I was just completely in love with music. And when I think about the time I grew up in with all of that great stuff on the radio, there's no wonder I fell in love with it, you know. Um, and I finally got a guitar when I was 10 and um, took um, like basic beginner type lessons. My teacher was good. She got us started on tab. But then within four months, I think it was after four months, she said, okay, that's enough of the tab. We got you started now on the guitar. Now it's proper notation and and so after four months the tab was gone and we were strictly onto conventional notation which was a real struggle I remember kind of scratching my head thinking oh, what's this and then realizing well if that's C that's B and that's A and and just following the logic of it and within you know very short space of time I didn't need tab anymore well, wow, that, that's that's quite unusual, really, um, for for someone that's uh, kind of like uh, learning pop styles, um, uh, uh, at least nowadays, anyway. That to, for a teacher yeah. to, to to be so insistent to learn notation, mm. that's that's pretty cool. I th I think it was the norm back then. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, things have got dumbed down pretty seriously since then. <laughs> okay, I. I had a great love of, of all the music, the good quality pop music and rock music of the time. And um, my, my dad um, thought rock music was rubbish. And, uh, and he was trying to sort of influence me and get me into other things. Anyway, while his, his motivation of turning me away from rock music wasn't, wasn't that great because um, I still loved rock music and I still I still do um, but he wanted to switch me on to other things and he he um, one of the things he did was he, he tried to make me aware of jazz and um, the great band the modern jazz quartet came to Adelaide where I grew up in 1975 
and um, my dad took me along to see them and they were these gray-haired old guys in tuxedos and it was the last thing I wanted to see and um, anyway um, I really didn't want to go but I just went along to shut my dad up and um, anyway some thing happened and I had this kind of magical experience and the modern jazz quartet I don't know if you're aware they were like one of the great bands of the 50s and 60s yeah. and uh the the main soloist is Milt Jackson the great vibraphonist and he's such a wonderful improviser and um something happened and it was like a magic spell and I was sort of transfixed and I I it's the only time in my life where I could say I ever felt like I was in a trance I felt like I was kind of mesmerized by the music and it was like this really amazing magical state of consciousness that I've never experienced before or since and it was like well I you know jazz then became the like an obsession for me and I would listen to the radio and buy records and um you know really got to know the jazz idiom pretty well although I didn't really play it much I was a bit scared and there was nowhere to learn it in Adelaide um but um anyway and then I started playing in in a band started playing in bands and uh, rock bands and then start to play some jazz with some guys and in Adelaide and by the time I was 20 there was a pub in Adelaide called the Maylands Hotel and I was playing jazz in the Maylands Hotel a couple of nights a week which was a really great experience because I was playing with a singer Sue Barker who was about 10 years older than me and she's very experienced and good and plus there was a couple of older guys, a saxophonist, Barry Duggan, who lives in Melbourne, I think now, and a trumpet player called Freddie Payne. And they were um, about 20 years older than me. So it was a really good experience to, to play every week for about a year with guys who were um, much more experienced, you know, um, and I, I'd read a lot of um, biographies and autobiographies of jazz musicians. And one thing that I'd picked up was that the concept of paying your dues was something that every musician talked about. Paying your dues meaning, first of all, practice and get yourself up to a decent level. And secondly, go out and learn from and and play with people who are older and much more experienced than you so this was this was a great experience for me and this is probably uh you know where a lot of jazz students kind of never kind of cross the threshold really like for for like amateur guys that might be sort of at home uh you know like learning this and that but but there there does come a point where you really got to get out there and start playing with other people to to kind of uh take your playing to to that next stage isn't it yeah i yeah absolutely i agree i mean everybody's not like me you know i mean i'm very driven and and uh you know i was always i always wanted to be like the greatest guitarist in the world that was what i was aiming for and i'm still aiming for that you know oh you're pretty I, close man 
I'm I'm trying hard anyway, but um, uh, but that was always my thing. I wanted to be the greatest guitarist and play with the greatest musicians, and um, that's always been my motivation. I never gave a, a damn about being a rock star or anything like that. I was always just play with wanted to play with Miles Davis and people of and Herbie Hancock, people of that level. That was, and I'm still. That's still what motivates me. Um, anyway, when I was 15, I went to a secondhand record shop in Adelaide called Umbrella Music. And I was looking through the album, the records, you know, LPs, and, and I picked up uh, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Birds of Fire album. And um, I didn't have any money to buy, but I looked at the back cover and there were pictures of the musicians on there. And there was a picture of Billy Cobham. And I thought, he looks like a nice guy. I, I would like to play in his band and be his friend. And I was like this inexperienced kid from Adelaide who'd never done a gig. And I just thought, what a bizarre thought, you know. <laughs> and then when I was about 17, 18, I was still very naive. I remember saying to this friend of mine, geez, I'd like to play in Billy Cobham's band, you know. And I was like so naive and so inexperienced and probably not that good on the guitar. I mean, musical and intuitive about music and curious and working on it, but not not accomplished. And and I'd remember hearing myself saying, thing, wow, okay, you really want that? And Anyway, then I moved to Sydney in 1983 and I, I was really out to better myself. And I practiced like, like crazy. I was between the age of 19 and 27. I, most days I would do about five hours, five to six hours practice. Oh, really? And I trans, transcribed a lot of solos as well. And um, Went to Sydney 1983, and then thanks to the generosity of my parents, I went to Berkeley School of Music for a year in uh, 1984, oh, really? the fall semester. Yeah, Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And um, then came back to Sydney, and I was uh, just determined to play with the best musicians in Sydney. And... Um, the the guy to play with was Jackie Orzarski, who was that's O R S Z O R S Z A C Z K Y Jackie Orzarski, and he had been Marsha Hines's uh, musical director, so he's quite well known and respected in pop music. But he was a really well rounded, accomplished composer, bass player, singer amazing guy but he was like the miles davis of sydney and that he was the guy who everybody wanted to play with and if you played with him if you played with jackie you got instant credibility as a musician and that's what happened to me well wow. yeah but the way i got the gig was i used to go and see him play about at least once a month for about four years and every time I went to see him, I would introduce myself. I would go and say, hi, Jackie. I'd love to play in your band. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how many times I did that. And I didn't have a business card and we didn't have mobile phones. So I used to sometimes have like a crumpled piece of paper with my <laughs> phone number on it. And I'd give him my number, you know. 
and uh, eventually this worked. Right. You, know, you, you were just persistent. That. I was very persistent. So, you know, working hard and playing your instrument well is really important, but if you don't have courage, you'll never get anywhere. Courage is half of it. Even for me now, you know, I, I've got up to a certain level, but if I but if I want to maintain that level career-wise or get past it, courage is absolutely the thing to do it, you know. Right. Sticking my neck out. I mean, like, for example, you mentioned that I played at Ronnie Scott's. I played there more than 300 times. Right. <laughs> but it, in order to get one gig there, I went in there and rang up quite frequently for eight years it took me eight years of effort to get one gig wow wow and then one thing led to another and i've done over 300 i mean maybe 400 gigs now there mm, mm. you know but it's courage yeah um, just just, so, just kind of just kind of getting started somewhere isn't it yeah well it just uh well and also knowing what you want like because I, I think the thing is whatever it is that you want to do you were competing, whether you were co competitive by nature or not, which which I'm not, but you were competing with people who desperately want that. Mm. Like, for example, I've um, had a few uh, brushes with playing uh, in the theatre pit in the West End in London. Disastrous, you know, <laughs> just disastrous. Didn't work out at all. Well, what, 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 what happened? Oh, well, you know, it, it, it wasn't that I made a mess of things. It's just the musical directors are like gods there, you know. And um, if they like you, they like you. And, and then, then if you do a good job and they like you, then you're in. If you do a good job and they don't like you, then you're out. No matter, you, you know, they won't yeah. let you in. Yeah. And the thing is, that ha that's the same for everybody. But the thing is, with the guys who do that kind of work, they're aware of that, and they're up against that just as much as anybody else. But they're willing to pay the price and figure out, okay, this guy doesn't like me. Why doesn't he like me? What do I have to do to get this kind of work? And they just doggedly pursue it, you mm, know. Mm. So the thing is, I wasn't like that. I just thought, well, it would be nice to do that kind of work. It's highly skilled work, so you feel good about yourself and it's well paid. I thought, well, that would be great. But actually, it's not my passion. Mm, mm. You know, my passion is to be a great improviser and composer. And I and I had a similar experience with, like, studio work. I, I know guys who do studio work, and they do the most amazing work, you know. I know guys who do, like, who, like a couple of guys who are studio guitarists in London, and they're incredible musicians. And I've had a few brushes with that kind of thing, but it never worked out. And it, but again, so it's not my passion. Yeah, you know? it's just not your bag. Yeah, it's, yeah. And I, but but the other thing is, I'm just not suited to it. Like, I get, you know, once the record button's on, I'm a bag of nerves. You know, right. <laughs> in a way that I 
can't handle. Oh, that's Whereas if I'm up on stage playing with Billy Cobham, I'm a bag of nerves in a way that I can handle. And within two minutes, the nerves are gone. Mm. Whereas if I'm sitting in an orchestra pit in the West End or sitting in a recording studio in some high-pressure situation, the nerves set in and they just get worse and worse and worse, you know. I think the thing so, about those situations is like you have to kind of, sometimes you just got to play these two notes at a very specific time and like like you have a rest for like uh, 60 bars yeah. and then you've just got to play these notes and you're kind of waiting for it, waiting for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very yeah, intense. It, it's terrifying. And if, but the thing is, as I said, it was a kind of fear that I couldn't handle. Mm, Whereas yeah. getting up and playing with Billy Cobham and George Duke, or playing, you know, playing the guitar just by myself in front of Sting, so that he could hear me play. I was nervous, of course, but it didn't bother me. Not in a way that bothered me. So I think that's another thing, uh, you know, the kind of work that you'll get, you, you've got to, it, it's, you're only going to get the kind of work that you're temperamentally suited to, mm, mm. you know. And, I mean, for me, studio work and, like, orchestra pits, my temperament is just not suited to that. Mm, you mm. know, it's not that I lack the skill to do it or anything like that, but first of all, I, lack, I don't have the temperament for it because it just the nerves are uncontrollable and secondly my desire is not there and and actually it's quite interesting about 5 years ago i was playing with that band Fletcher's Brew that you mentioned at mm. Ronnie's where we played many many gigs and i couldn't do one of the gigs and the guy who depth for me is Tommy Emerton who's a really phenomenal guitarist he's currently playing in the West End on the in the band of the Book of Mormon and um incredible guitarist very very experienced and very accomplished at that theater orchestra pit type of playing and he depth for me and I saw him a few days after and he said my god how do you do that and I said what do you mean and he said that's the most terrifying thing I've ever done <laughs> And he said, I can't handle it. Wow. And I said to him, well, what you do is the most terrifying thing I've ever done. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it wasn't like he didn't have the, um, the capability or the experience as a guitarist to handle the gig at Ronnie Scott's. But the nerves were of a kind that he couldn't cope yeah. with. Or sitting in an orchestra pit with a click track going and, all the pressure of that. That's a kind of pressure that he can, he can handle. It's a, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of what you're saying here, Carl, because it's sort of what, what I'm getting from this is that you really need to kind of play to your strengths and, and yeah. find a niche in music, um, especially if you're interested in pursuing it as a career that kind of resonates with you. Um, you know, yeah. you, you, I think what happens a lot, especially, you know, um, sometimes I've noticed this with, with guys studying jazz is that they, they just, they think they should just play like Coltrane or, or, or whatever, or they think they need to play like Pat Martino and they put all this pressure on themselves to kind of have a particular sound or, or have a particular approach and, mm. and, and you could, but they're, they're not actually 
being themselves, which is probably yeah. their biggest strength, you know? Well, actually, it's funny you should mention that because Herbie Hancock was in Australia, wasn't he, just this week? Uh, he was, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw yeah, him on the news, yeah. And he said exactly that. He was oh, really? interviewed in the newspaper and he said, don't copy me. He said, if you copy me, that takes you away from, from your unique self, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think there's, um, there's two sides to that. Mm. Nobody has transcribed, well, I wouldn't say nobody has transcribed more than me. That's, that's a lie. But not, not a great percentage <laughs> of people have transcribed more than me. I've transcribed a lot of solos, uh, a lot of John McLaughlin, uh, a lot of Mike Stern. Uh, when I say a lot, I like about 20 John McLaughlin, right. eight, eight Mike Stern solos, 14 Alan Holdsworth, no, 11 Alan Holdsworth solos, and half a dozen John McLaughlin, uh, John Schofield solos, mm -hmm. and a couple of uh, George Benson solos, maybe three or four, and a couple of Miles Davis solos, a Joe Henderson solo, a lot, you know, and Jim Hall solo, a hell of a lot. And actually, in my case, I, f I was able to go, I learned all of that stuff and I did what jazz musicians often say, which is, well, learn all of that and forget it, which is literally <laughs> what I did. Right, right. I just used it as a, as a basis. Sure. Um, but it was a tremendous grounding and it helped me to come to grips with the instrument. But I think, I think actually just being yourself and being natural is absolutely number one. The reason I made that kind of, I mean, when I think about it, quite a stupendous effort mm. um, was because it was very natural for me to do that. Mm. Mm. You know, nothing but my own desire was asking me to do that, you know. So um, I think just follow what comes to you naturally. I mean, I think uh, what, what I try to do is, learn the solos, learn the material a bit, then learn the real lesson of that, which in the case of every single one of those musicians is follow their, their example rather mm. than the actual notes they play in the long run. Having learnt the notes first, but then in the long run follow uh, you mentioned Pat Martino. Follow Pat Martino's example of working hard mm. and developing a really original style. Yeah, yeah, and being so committed to that style. That's what I love about his playing. It's like sure. it's it's always yeah. unmistakably him. You know. Yeah, and you know George. And to give a good example of an offshoot of that is George Benson was mm. always a big fan of Pat Martino, but George is not that like, he's not as academic and as theoretical by nature as Pat Martino is. Mm. And George said that he wanted to emulate the uh, chromatic complexity and sophistication of Pat Martino, but he just didn't have that kind of brain, but he did have the 
diligence to work hard at what he was doing. So what George did was he imitated the, the sound and the texture of Pat Martino's playing rather than getting as being as theoretical and as academic as Pat Martino. And of course, both of them achieved really outstanding results, but due to their different temperaments, their different uh, personalities, the, the results are dramatically different. Mm, so mm. I think it's a great, George Benson's a great example of learning from somebody and then going, well, this is great, but I am me and I'm going to do this my own way. I think it's a really good example, you know. Mm. No, this this is. Uh, I'm I'm so glad we're recording this. This is this is what oh, people cool. need to hear when it when yeah. it comes to 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 approaching yeah. learning any music really. Uh, so yeah, but speaking of you know y- your own music, I I think this is timely to kind of talk about your latest album, which has just been released around the time of this podcast. It's called Somewhere Else, as I mentioned before. And um, I, I think it's probably time to play uh, a track off this album, Carl. Um, do, do you want to kind of give people a bit of a, um overview of, of how you would kind of conceptualise your approaches and style that you've taken on this album? Okay, yeah. Um, I've always had a broad range of um, musical interests. I mean, I like anything that's good, you know, like from, you know, from Stravinsky to the Kinks to Aretha to, you know, Miles and Herbie, whatever, you know, James Brown, anything that's good I I, I like. Um, so I've always just written in a way that... Um, just kind of unfolds but one, one thing uh, the best piece of advice I ever got was when I was 17 a friend of mine said if you if you want to be good at writing music you need to do it every day just like playing your instrument right and I've I've done very well with taking his advice I must say I mean most days since then that was over 40 years ago I've, I've actually spent some time writing um so that I have all kinds of different approaches to writing. Um, sometimes I just pick up the acoustic guitar or the pencil and paper. Sometimes I get my recording software up and I come up with a drum beat and a bass line, all sorts of different things. And tunes on this album were, were written in all kinds of different ways. Uh, one of the uh, pieces I, I'm most happy with is called Katie, and that's the one like you to play um i wrote it for my daughter and i wrote it as a kind of uh solo guitar piece oh uh, yeah I, I i did listen to that one i really liked that one okay well um the, the, that's uh, uh well let's uh roll the the track now this is carl Orr playing katie off his brand new album somewhere else uh let's have a listen
Okay, beautiful. That was Katie by Carl Orr on his brand new album, Somewhere Else. And you can find Carl's new album. You can get it from his website at carlor.com. And um, can you find it on iTunes as well, Carl? Yeah, iTunes, Spotify. Please don't go to Spotify. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's available all all the usual places. So, yeah, just put Carl Orr into Google and you'll be able to find Carl Orr's website and you can get that album. It's a beautiful album. I've listened to the whole thing. Um, Carl gave me a bit of a sneak peek before it was released and um, yeah, uh, you're in for a real treat. So make sure you check that one out and support Carl's wonderful music. Uh, We're going to take a bit of a different turn now. Carl, um, you know, as as you know, we've been talking um, a lot in the lead up to this call. Um, you know, we're both uh, interested in uh, meditation practices and so forth. And and I, I just uh, I think this is a great opportunity uh, just to ask you, you know, like you uh, from from what I've seen on your website, you're a, you're a practicing Buddhist, um, and uh, and I'd be really interested to hear how um, that side of things in your life kind of ties in with music and and um and the kind of the connection between the two thank you yeah i've been uh, practicing uh nichiren buddhist since uh 1984 um i just thought i'd try it for a little while see how i felt and uh i liked it so much i've never stopped um i was struggling i, I was brought up in an atheist family and just having no sort of real philosophical basis for my life in that sense was just not, it didn't work for me at all. And I got very depressed and I felt very disorientated and sort of lost, actually. And then I started practicing Buddhism and the Buddhist daily practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo um, gave me a, a really great start to each day to start with. And also the, the philosophy is, is really wonderful, really common sense and very strong and gives you courage and determination and builds your compassion and your um, empathy with other people and also increases your, your ability to, to strive for the things you want. So it's been a really amazing thing. Mm, uh, mm. The reason I got interested in this particular kind of Buddhism is because of a big fan of Herbie Hancock and that triggered my interest. And then when the opportunity came, I just jumped on it. So, so Her- said, Herbie Hancock was, was into this form of Buddhism as well, was he? Oh, he has been for over 40 years. Oh, Herbie Hancock. And he was introduced by the bassist Buster Williams, who was in his band and other people in his band, like the great saxophonist, Benny Maupin. And of course the wonderful Wayne Shorter, all of these people are practicing Nichiren Buddhism. And Tina Turner also practices Nichiren Buddhism mm. as well. Oh, there um, you go. Yeah. So, and the, the um, you know, also the thing that really uh, is important to me is completely nonviolent. And it's a, it's a very organized nonviolence organization as well. Very big in opposing nuclear weapons. In fact, in Italy, the biggest nuclear weapons, anti-nuclear organization is called um, Senza Atomica, and that's actually started from 
Nichiren Buddhist oh, wow. in, oh, in Italy, yeah. And also we're part of ICANN, which mm-hmm. won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017, right. Uh, right. which is a, a, an umbrella uh, umbrella name for lots of organisations. But we've been a member of ICANN um, since it started, and it's like an umbrella organisation of, of anti-nuclear organisations. Right. And um, so that's very important to me. Mm, being mm. opposed to nuclear weapons and to all violence yeah. so when i play music i'm not just getting caught up in oh how, how am i playing i'm actually trying to create a microcosm of world peace wherever i am mm. so it's had a dramatic effect on my music and that the motivation for my music is not to like impress other musicians or anything like that but to actually really bring a harmonious atmosphere to wherever i play wow and that's the thing isn't it is because uh what what you what your intention is ends up kind of being how you feel and what your result is and and that's where i i do notice i feel a lot of musicians do go wrong is because they're they're so obsessed about sort of uh, you know what other people think of them, or yeah. um, you know it's it's entirely kind of self-focused. Whereas what thinking what good they can do out in the world, it completely changes everything, and uh, and uh, can um, uh, and it it really can bring your mind a lot of calm, can't it? When you sort of flip the switch like that. Oh, absolutely, and I think also you play better because you're mm. not thinking, oh, oh, I. I'm rubbish. I suck. You're just thinking about, you know, what I try to do is I look around the room when I play and I think, hmm, that woman at the back looks a bit bored. Let me just <laughs> try and make the music a bit more interesting. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but because the thing is people have all kinds of problems in their lives. They have, you know, health problems, financial problems, relationship problems, what, you know, lots of different problems. And I'm very aware that, the reason people go out to listen to your music is because they want to forget about all of that. Exactly. And, exactly. I, and I'm very conscious of that. So it takes me completely away from that self-focused thing mm. altogether. And I just think I want you, you know, what I always say to myself is I want everybody in this room to feel better when they walk out of the room than they did when they walked in. Yeah, and they, they don't want someone to sit there stressing out about whether they uh, look good or are better than the other people in the room or whatever. That's not what people are there for, right? No. That, people have got enough stress in their lives. Yeah. They don't need mine. Or <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so Buddhism, um, I, I was just reading some Buddhist writing today from Daisaku Ikeda, who's the head of our Buddhist organization and it's written this very simple book for young people called you were born to win. And I was just reading this today saying, um, there are many troubling, unpleasant and worrisome things in life. When you face such things, you have two options. You can complain, blame the environment and defeated. Some may express sympathy for you, but ultimately you're the one to lose out and anything you say will really just be an excuse. The second option is to live with an invincible spirit. The choice is up to you. Mm. Happiness Mm. is found in a strong, resilient spirit. 
it's possible for us to open a great path of hope so long as we don't succumb to the weakness of blaming others for everything that happens to us. We have to decide it's all up to me. Complaining and making excuses is very unattractive. Blaming others is not a very admirable way to live. Mm. I mean, that's great. You don't have to be a Buddhist. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So whether whether you're kind of into that philosophy, like that that sort of uh, you know whether you call it a religion or philosophy is one thing, but that's just common sense that that anyone could yeah. benefit from, really. Yeah. And I must say, reading that kind of material every day really gives me so much spiritual strength, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and and you know, being a musician can be tough. I guess it's a challenging kind of career and and it's it, it's good like regardless of whatever kind of philosophy you follow it's important to have a strong philosophy i think especially if you're going to yeah. be in this career because um you, you know it, it, it there's a lot of setbacks um disappointments you know uh, i'm talking to everyone that's aspiring or on the path to being a pro musician uh yeah you you, you need to to be very well grounded in a good philosophy if you're going to survive and thrive in this industry yeah so uh, yeah, well, th- thanks for uh, sharing that, Carl. Uh, I, I know that's that's probably a bit left field for for uh, these kind of podcasts that I do, but I, I think it's uh, mm. very interesting, especially hearing about all those other um, amazing musicians that have been into that um, that mm. style of Buddhism as well. I, I, I didn't know that. So uh, okay, so um, you know, before we wrap up the call today, Carl, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I want to talk about the brand new course that um, you uh, you put together for us in the Fret Dojo Academy. It's all about cliche-free improvisation. And um, yeah, I got a lot out of, you know, editing the videos myself for this course. I, I had a ball putting it together. And, um, and I think it's got uh, some of the best information that's featured in the Academy is in this course. So uh, Carl, I, w- I wanted to talk to you um, sort of leading off from there is, you know, what, what advice do you have in general for uh, guitarists that are interested in improving their jazz skills? You know, like what, 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 what are sort of the mindsets and strategies that you've used um, and also the, the, some of the biggest mistakes that you've noticed um, aspiring students make when, when they've been trying to uh, become better improvisers or better jazz players overall? I think um, the... The main mistake people make, I, I noticed this because it's a pronounced tendency of my own, is to try and do too much, to try and um, do things that are above their heads. Um, you know, playing jazz guitar, improvising over changes and trying to make it sound musical is, is a hell of a tall order, you know. So I think... Um, the important thing is not to try to do too much. I think, like, so if you're working on a particular song, like, play it at a tempo that you can manage, even if it's, like, preposterously slow, just <laughs> slow it right down and um, don't try and do too much. I think that's the number one thing because it's such a sort of a balancing act of the sort of playing the right 
information, you know, you, you know, you got to play the right notes over the quarter. It's going to sound horrible and um, balance that with actually then <laughs> trying to make it sound good as if just playing the right notes itself wasn't enough. It's like, oh, we're going to make it sound good as well. God, that's a bit much, isn't it? So, um, I mean, one of the things that I, I would say is, um, you know, obviously if you're going to learn a song with a lot of chords in it, there's no easy way. You know, you just got to go chord by chord, learn all the scales, the arpeggios that you have to play for it, and there's just no avoiding it, you know. But then once you've done that, then it's like you can, like, fluently play that song. But the thing is, one of the things um, that I've learned is that getting fluent at something might take a few years of practice. Mm, mm. Like, um, for example, uh, I, um, I mean, I worked on giant steps, the dreaded giant <laughs> steps for a while, you know. Yeah, and every, I, every, I, every, I, every final year <clears throat> jazz student's um, nightmare. <laughs> yeah, and I, I played giant steps every day for five years or something, you know. Mm. So, you know, if a tuner's difficult you know don't be surprised to find yourself still practicing it five years later you know and i mean when i worked on giant steps for five years i started working on it when i was about 29 or 30 i'd been a professional musician for 10 years by then well you know it wasn't like you know like and even now like uh i still practice some things for for years you know when i say years i don't mean i'm practicing for two hours a day for years i mean after the initial thing of getting to grips with them, i practice for maybe five minutes a day mm -hmm. five minutes a day for five years and that's a really important thing i think another thing that's really important which i've heard a lot of great musicians say that they do is practice away from the instrument so when you're sitting on the train or walking or sitting on the bus instead of putting your headphones on and distracting your brain with other people's music think about a song you're playing think about like if you're learning a particular song instead of distracting yourself with all this stuff don't bother with your headphones just think about well what's that song i'm learning and don't even listen to a recording of the song like go through it in your head think okay so we we did satin doll didn't we so yeah, yeah. okay so satin doll so i got g minor seven c seven g minor seven c seven a minor seven d seven a minor seven, D seven, and so on. And just go through the whole thing in your head, memorize it and reinforce your memorization while you're doing, you know, in your dead time sort of thing. Yeah. And then think about the arpeggios, let's say, to that chord, to each chord. So say D minor seven, imagine how you play a D minor seven. Imagine you've got the guitar in your hand mm. and just imagine how you play a D minor seven in, 
four or five different positions and then do the same with the G7. It's an amazing idea, isn't it? It's like, it's like you might have a much more practice time than you that you might not have realised. Otherwise, if you can't actually get physically to the instrument, you've still got all those Absolutely. opportunities. Well, why waste your time on the bus or the train? Mm. You know, mm. it's just wasted time. You, you know, you know uh, I, I saw something, uh, 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 an interesting post. It was a few years back, but a fellow was interested in learning how to snowboard. And so, yeah. and so, um, he wasn't in an area with snow. He was, I think he was in Australia somewhere where it was hot and he wouldn't be able to get to the snow for about six months. So what he did is he firstly watched lots of videos about snowboarding that he'd sit there and imagine really intently snowboarding and the feel of the board and, and going down the hill and, and like used his imagination. And then when it came to actually, and he did this every day, when it came to actually go to the snow, when it was the right season, he just popped popped the snowboard straight on and 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 went like a pro <laughs> for the very first time so it was it was just all from the power of his mind you know there's a lot to be said for that yeah yeah and it's good fun you know <laughs> discipline but it's good fun yeah. yeah yeah so to me that's that's one of the things that you can do um and i think the other thing is spend a little bit of time each day doing things that are really pure examples of improvisation. Like one of the important things to me was to develop my own style. Mm, mm. And I thought, well, how do I do that? And the only thing that I could think is, well, play as simply as possible. Right. And just be. So one thing that I did was I would say uh, I have to be very pure and just play things I've never played before. Right, so let's say, um, <clears throat> can you hear that all right? Yeah, it sounds good. So for example, if I'm doing like a, um, let's say a D minor, just playing over a D minor chord, just simplify everything. Um, so I've got D minor. And I just completely play what I hear. just simple yeah, but yeah i've never played any of that stuff before so that that's something i do a lot just mm. spend a you know it's not it's not something i spend a lot of time on but it's something i do very frequently so for a few minutes each day just really playing things that you're hearing and very simply mm. so then whatever kind of clever or difficult technical stuff you're working on you've got a good grounding in well what is what am i actually hearing what you know what's going on in my ears you know and i think just that very very simple basic practice of using your ears is invaluable 
Mm-hmm. And it's also the key, the absolute key to developing a, an, an original style. Right. If you, in fact, without it, there is no way to develop an original style, you know? Yeah, I, 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 I sort of, I, I really picked that up when I was um, sort of, uh, you know, looking through all these videos from, from the new course um, on cliche free improvisation, Carl, and how, um, uh, you know, you've really brought it down to, you know, these exercises that are, that are quite simple and, and you feel like, oh, you know, like that's, um, it seems common sense and obvious, but when you really think about think about it, it's like I actually haven't been practicing those things that much. You know, like that's that's the 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 real insight that I got from those exercises. Things like you know, just going back to simple rhythms and really disciplining yourself to um, making a solo just with a single rhythm pattern or moving yeah. these rhythm patterns around and uh, and using your voice and um, you know uh, phrase displacement and just just like all these kind of core things. But what I love about this new course is how it's all kind of this kind of set of exercises almost like a sort of a daily yoga routine almost kind of thing and um and yeah it's uh it's uh, i think it's gonna be very very helpful for for a lot of players to to bring out that original sound and and it kind of what what you were saying about keeping things simple it, it reminds me of um uh, you know what Joe Pass said is like if he wants to play complex, he needs to think simple. You know, like like oh, you, you need to have a yeah a simple kind of framework to to because if you're thinking complicated all the time, it's actually hard to play um, complex music. Whereas if you've got simple frameworks, that then mm. you can then you can go wherever you want with it creatively. So um, so yeah, I'm yeah. so excited about this new course. I mean, I think one of the things that is common to all the best musicians is that ability to think very simply mm, mm. and express themselves very simply. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, so pow- powerful stuff. So, um, well, th- this has been absolutely fantastic, Carl. So, um, uh, make sure guys that you check out, uh, uh, Carl's brand new course, cliche free improvisation, which is in the fret, dojo academy okay well um carl it's uh it's it's been brilliant having you on the show today i've really enjoyed hearing about all your influences and um and we've taken lots of interesting twists and turns in this conversation and it's been wonderful hearing um the uh uh, the track off your brand new album as well so um yeah uh, any any final kind of advice you'd like to give to the listeners before we wrap up the call today yeah um enjoy your music really enjoy your music um if your music is stressing you out your guitar playing stressing you out you need to do something about it um so um figure out a way of practicing that's natural for you you know like what ask yourself what are the things i enjoy doing the most like in my case i really love playing solo guitar so i spend a bit of time playing solo guitar every day and i love i've always loved doing technical practice so i always work on that and i enjoy improvisation and so i i spend the great majority of my practice time working on the things i enjoy the things i love and then the rest of my practice times, the things that I 
like need to do songs, learning songs for a gig or or whatever, you know. So I think <clears throat> really important to enjoy your music, enjoy your practice time and work on, spend most of your practice time working on the things you enjoy. When I say enjoy, it's not like goofing off and and mucking around. I mean like, you know, proper concentrated practice, but on the things that you're naturally drawn to, you know. Wonderful, wonderful. So that's uh, I want everyone to remember that that's listening to this. Um, one some of, some of the best advice uh, that that I've heard when it comes to playing just came out of Carl's mouth. So, <laughs> uh, okay, Carl. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule for for this call. And uh, and um, yeah, look look forward to catching up with you soon, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Greg. Okay, so that was the wonderful Carl Orr. You can find Carl and his music at carlorr.com. What a fabulous guitarist and a great guy. I always love talking to Carl. And um, yeah, make sure that you uh, check out Carl's new course in the Academy, but also his brand new album, Somewhere Else. It's, uh, it's available on his website there. And also, you, um, I'm sure if you go to his website, you can find out uh, Carl's other latest projects and uh, gigs coming up and so forth so uh, thanks very much for listening to today's episode uh, we've got lots more podcasts coming up uh, so make sure you subscribe to uh, the frettdojo.com podcast on if you're on itunes there uh, otherwise check out my website uh, uh, for my new episodes okay thanks guys it's greg o'rourke here signing off and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode bye for now